Statistics Part 6. Okay, so when more on hazard ratios. When will your unadjusted hazard ratio roughly approximate your adjusted hazard, hazard ratio? So we've seen these in papers as well, where someone will um, report an unadjusted hazard ratio and then say unadjusted hazard ratios. So they will approximate one another when there are no major imbalances between arms. So theoretically, randomization should equalize all those known and unknown factors between the arms. And so a hazard ratio, adjusted or unadjusted, should approximate one another in a randomized trial. Okay, so what is an unadjusted hazard ratio? An unadjusted hazard ratio is calculated from univariate Cox proportional hazards modeling. So looking at treatment and its impact on survival. That's univariate proportional hazards modeling. And you get a hazard, an unadjusted hazards ratio from that. Adjusted hazard ratio would be calculating a hazard ratio using multiple variables, multivariate Cox proportional hazards modeling, looking at all the relevant covariates that you think are relevant and including them. So treatment and all covariates and its impact on survival. That's when the adjusted hazard ratio is used. And those two approximate one another when the arms in the trial are largely the same. When can you apply a hazard ratio? We've talked about this a little bit, kind of touched on it. Okay, so you can use a hazard ratio during a study period. You, the hazard ratio does not apply beyond the study period. You can't assume proportional hazards hold beyond the curves you see in front of you. So if your proportional hazards modeling includes a four-year curve, that's how long you can assume your hazard ratio. You cannot account for subsequent interventions on treatment effect after the trial, right? So if you're looking at women with recurrent ovarian cancer and you're looking at the adjusted hazard ratio during the four years of follow-up that they were followed as a study cohort, and then you want to say something about them at year five and six, you can't account for any other future treatments they've received, accidents they may have had, new covariates that might crop up or differences. Um, and so it's, it can't be overemphasized that you can only apply a hazard ratio during the study period. Okay, now just like really generally phase zero through four, let's talk about how many people are in, a, in that trial and what the general purpose of the trial is. So phase zero, this is considered first in human. 10 people maybe, 15 people. And they're given a sub-therapeutic dose of something. And really we're looking at pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. And does the drug hit the target? So is this an on-target drug effect? So you're getting very small amounts. This isn't a therapeutic trial. Literally goes from lab to human. 
phase one is the safety phase trials. So they're finding doses. They're looking at side effects of the maximum tolerated dose or maximum feasible dose, treatment effects, and basically double the amount of people you'd see in a phase zero. So if it's 10 to 15, it's 15 to 30 in phase one. What about phase two? And we can get fancier, but just think about it in big, broad terms. So if phase zero is first in human, looking at drug and target effects, phase one is safety, looking at what's the maximum tolerated dose, phase two is then efficacy and side effects. So you'll have 100 to 300 people in a phase two trial. Phase three is, oh, sorry, and phase two can often be versus a standard. So that's where the randomized phase two trials come in. So you can look at, like for instance, which PARP trial was it? It was study 19. So study 19 was a phase two trial that was looking at Olaparib in women um, with plat platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. There was no placebo in this trial. It was a phase two trial. So they were looking at the efficacy of Olaparib, side effects of Olaparib. But if it was a randomized phase two, and we do have examples of that, um, and we even talked about it a little bit with um, basket trials, right? Lots and lots of different cancers, all with a mutation being exposed to, sing to a single drug. That's like having multiple randomized phase twos all in one trial. So a randomized phase two is looking at efficacy of a drug and its side effects, and also putting it against a standard. So whatever the standard treatment at the time might be. Phase three is looking at experimental therapy that you've tested in humans, determined the safe amount, safe dosing, determined that it has an efficacy signal in a phase two trial. Now you want to put it against a standard. So carbotaxol plus minus bevacizumab. Your experimental therapy is bevacizumab, phase three randomized trial. 300 to 3,000 patients. So you need more patients in a randomized trial and more patients to establish superiority, which is often what a phase three trial is trying to do, or at least non-inferiority if there's um, something about the standard that you're trying to improve on, such as toxicity or quality of life or cost. Um, and so in phase three, you're looking at side effects, efficacy, and you're testing it against the standard. It's often randomized and it's often at least two groups and often can be more groups, right? Like, so GOG um, 262, or not 262, the, I'm blanking, but the, I, the basically the most recent IP trial had a standard arm and two experimental arms. And so phase three trials can have multiple arms. Um, what, GOG 182 was similar. There were at least four arms in that trial. And then phase four, if you're asked about it, that's the real world. So that's everybody, post-marketing surveillance. So some drugs been FDA approved. So now we have FDA approval of Olaparib in the front line. So now phase four is all the patients who are going to get Olaparib now post-marketing. And that's helpful because you can look for rare side effects and long-term side effects in populations. Because um, the, population, the population you're looking at is so much larger that you're more likely to see the rarer side effects than you would have in a population of 100 patients or 300 patients 
And you're going to be following that cohort for a much longer period of time than a study, like a year or two or three. And so maybe you'll start to see, you know, like incidents of AML in a lap of exposed patients. Um, you'll get maybe a greater sense of the incidence of that in the real world phase four. So coming back to just some basic points, like miscellaneous points, um, power in a trial is, a, is affecting your ability to detect an effect. So if you power something, you're powering, oh, I want to see a 50% difference between groups or a 5% difference between groups. So that's where power is impacting. But it has no impact on whether you are incorrectly accepting the null hypothesis. So power has nothing to do with whether you accept or incorrectly accept, correct or incorrectly accept the null hypothesis. Um, okay, what's a paired t-test? A paired t-test is comparing values before and after an intervention. An unpaired t-test is looking at two different groups of values, comparing them for a difference. That's an unpaired t-test. What's a chi-square? A chi-square is a parametric test that is used to determine differences between a measured and an expected proportion. So it's parametric. It's testing differences between measured versus expected proportions. And all the groups have to have at least five values for chi-square. If you don't have five or more values, you have to use Fisher's exact. Tell me what variance is. Variance is the sum of squared deviations of measurements from their mean. So it's summing up all the squared deviations of measurements from the mean measurement. Tell me the numbers for one standard deviation, two standard deviations, and three standard deviations. One standard deviation is 68%. Two standard deviations, which is the more common standard deviations we use, 95%. And three, which is less common, 99.7%. Just something to know. Tell me what kappa is. Kappa is Inter-observer variability. I think of kappas with path concordance studies. So how, what's the kappa when you're looking at pathologist A and pathologist B in the same slides? That's what kappa is looking at. Tell me what a p-value is. A p-value is the chance, the chance of obtaining a value at least as extreme as the one that you've observed, assuming the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis is that there is no difference. 
So it's the chance of obtaining a value at least as extreme as the one you've seen, assuming there is no difference. Okay, what's the goal of a confirmatory test? All right, so if it's a confirmatory test, that means you already had a screening test, right? HIV is a classic example. If you screen someone for HIV and it's positive, you need a confirmatory test because you typically would have a higher sensitivity than specificity in your diagnostic screen. So your confirmatory test needs to have a lot of specificity or the ability to detect a true negative. It's a rule in test after a screening test to help avoid overtreatment.